You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I am The Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Now, today we're going to be talking about the miracles of the great female saints. Now, there have been many incredible holy women in the history of our Church, starting, of course, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, and going through the ages with such people as Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, Joan of Arc, Bridget of Sweden, just to name a few. Many of them have great miracle stories with visions, ecstasies, incorruptible bodies, and other miraculous phenomena being associated with them. Today, we'll be talking with Elizabeth Ficocelli. She's an author, speaker, and radio host, and we'll be talking with her about her brand new book, her 15th book, entitled Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, where she shares her unlikely spiritual journey into the Catholic Church, and she reveals how three saints in particular, all with some sort of miraculous connections, uh, continue to provide powerful lessons for her about the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And of course, in just a bit, We'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, June 3rd, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. Now, this week in Miracle News, we have an interesting report from the Vatican Radio website, which is featuring a story about a new project coming out of the University of Cambridge called Mapping Miracles. Mapping Miracles is a medieval hagiography resource. Hagiography, of course, is the study of the saints. And it's a a project uh, done by several graduate students in the Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic to categorize and chart thousands of miracle stories recorded about saints of the British Isles between the year 500 and 1300. This project was just recently announced. (laughs) Now, a conference just took place in this Department of Anglo-Saxon North and Celtic, and it was the first step in an ambitious graduate-led project to create an online database of the diverse and often confounding miracle accounts which abound in the vast body of saintly literature produced by medieval authors. Here's a quote from Julian Piggott, who she's the senior leader of the project. She says, The layered stories of saints' acts serve multiple purposes in medieval communities, from regulating orthodox religious behavior to explaining the otherwise unexplainable in the natural world. End quote. So it's a digital database mapping miracles will be searchable by different categories, such as saints' names, the type of miracle, and other literary motifs. Uh, Piggott, she told uh, Vatican Radio that the first subject will be conversion stories, and she said she hopes 
that the database, although it's meant for scholars, will find a wider use. Quote, she says, I would hope that people would find this an interesting way to look at the medieval and see how it relates to the modern, she said. End quote. Uh, more information on the project can be found at mappingmiracles.wordpress.com. And to keep up to date with the latest in Miracle News, please visit miraclehunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series, Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. And now we turn to the mailbag, or email inbox, as it were, for the question of the day. question goes like this. Dear Miracle Hunter, does the Catholic Church ever change its mind about its judgments on miracles and apparitions? God bless, Stephen. Well, thank you, Stephen, for your excellent question. It's, in fact, a tricky one. Well, when the Church renders a judgment about supernatural phenomenon, it may classify them by three ways. One is, it's worthy of belief. The other one is, uh, not worthy of belief. And the third is sort of a middle category, uh, nothing contrary to faith and morals. That's sort of a middle ground judgment, a wait-and-see category. It's kind of open for later consideration. Now, it's important to remember that Catholics are never obliged to believe in an apparition, even when it is fully approved. You can decide what emphasis you want to place on it in your life of faith. But when a local bishop issues a negative judgment, however, uh, we are obliged to follow this directive in obedience to the bishop, because he's giving us guidance on something that may endanger faith and morals. But it's an interesting question whether the Church ever changes her mind on these matters. Now, most apparitions that are actually investigated receive judgments of known constat, that is, the wait-and-see category. There's nothing established as supernatural, but there's nothing found contrary to the faith. There's no proof of anything supernatural. Now, there have been cases where an apparition is initially found to have no proof of supernaturality, but over time, a greater perspective or more evidence comes to light, where it is later upgraded to an established as supernatural approved judgment. Now, there have been no known cases where the Church declares something as supernatural, then changes its mind to a negative decision. There have been a few cases where the local bishops or conference of bishops choose not to promote the devotion, uh, but there has never been a reversal from positive to negative. There have been, however, very few rare cases, like the Our Lady of All Nations apparitions in Amsterdam from 1945, and we covered that on last week's program, where the decision of the local bishop goes from negative, establishes not supernatural, to positive in the judgment of the local bishop, established as supernatural. So this change of position, uh, position is extremely rare, however, and you will not see it very often. Normally the Church stays put with a positive or negative decision. So thank you, Stephen, for your excellent question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, please email questions at miraclehunter.com. And we will select one question each week to be read on the air. Now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week, as in past weeks, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. 
It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. If you go to MiracleHunter.com on the homepage, you can check it out. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host Trivia Night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. Now, we always try to keep the questions related to the theme of the day's program, and today we're talking about female saints. Uh, The question of the day is, what female saints' parents were beatified in the year 2008? Again, that question is, what female saints' parents were beatified in 2008? And we'll see if you have the right answer. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. For those just joining the program, you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. You can call with your questions, 866-333-MARY. And for more information on the program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Each week, we, we do a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary. Now, for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title, feast, or commemoration of an apparition or other miraculous event that's being commemorated. (coughs) It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout the year. Now, I've organized all the dates with this feast and collected into one resource called 365 Days with Mary. Each entry features images, a description, and history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated, including visitor information and links for those wishing to see those places. <coughs> the project is available in print in the form of a daily engagement calendar, as well as online, 365dayswithmary.com. We're also on Twitter, where if you follow us, or Facebook, if you like us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about how our Blessed Mother is honored. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and visit the website 365dayswithmary.com to see the project. The print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Now I'm being told we have a caller on the line who has the answer to the trivia question. Monica, are you there? Hello. Hi, Monica. Welcome to the program. Okay. Okay, so the question today was... What female saint's parents were beatified in the year 2008? I'm just guessing, but I think it might be St. Teresa Morton, St. Teresa of the Little Flower, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus from Lisieux. Yes, very very good. That's the correct answer, and you gave us several of her, the ways she's known, so uh, bonus points for you. But uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux is the the answer. Uh, Blessed Maria Zell Martin and Blessed Luis Martin were beatified on October 19th, 2008, in the Basilica of St. Therese by Pope Benedict XVI. So you have the correct answer. And where are you calling from today? I'm in my car right now, and I'm moving toward Kinder, Louisiana. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for listening to the program and for calling in, and we'll send you the prize image uh, in the mail. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that was Monica with the right answer. The answer, again, was St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, her parents were beatified in the year 2008. So thank you, Monica, for calling in with that answer. Now back to 365 Days with Mary, the project we were just talking about. Um, this is a project uh, 
of course, where we, we look at how Mary is honored each day of the year. And on today, June 3rd, the feast day is Our Lady of Vladimir in Moscow, Russia. Now, it's one of the most beloved and well-known Marian images in the world. The Mother of God of Vladimir is an icon of the type of the Virgin of Tenderness, or Elusa, uh, translating to Merciful One. And it shows the Mother of God with the child Jesus cheek-to-cheek in a loving embrace. Prince Andrei Bogolbuski, he bought he brought the tempera panel from Kiev when he became the ruler of Vladimir, and he placed it in a gold case in the new Dormition Cathedral there. It was carried to Moscow in the year 1395 for the purpose, and the image was credited with lifting Tamerlane's siege. It was an event commemorated annually on September 8th. In the year 1480, another victory over invading Tartars, the image moved to Moscow permanently. There it became known as the work of St. Luke the Evangelist, and it's said to have been moved from Jerusalem to Constantinople in the year 450, and to the women's convent in Viskorod near Kiev in 1131. The Virgin of Vladimir hung in Moscow's Church of the Annunciation until 1918, and is now in the Tretkov State Gallery there. Today's celebration, and May 21st in the Julian calendar used by the Orthodox churches, commemorates Moscow's deliverance from Khan Mehmet Gari in 1521. The icon's move to Moscow in 1480 is commemorated on July 8th. <coughs> and that was today's feast. Our Lady of Vladimir, so be sure to visit the Project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online at 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about this devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated around the world. And this is Michael O'Neill. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. For more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. And today we'll be talking about some great female saints. There have been many incredible holy women in the history of our Church. We mentioned before Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, Joan of Arc, Bridget of Sweden, just to name a few. Many of them have great miracle stories of visions, ecstasies, incorruptible bodies, and other miraculous phenomenon being associated with them. And today we're going to be talking with Elizabeth Picocelli, author, speaker, and radio host, about her brand new book, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette. Now we welcome to the program today, Elizabeth Picocelli. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on your program today. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's exciting to talk to you today. And we've got three great saints, uh, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, uh, in your book. And tell, tell the listeners a little bit uh, what inspired you to write this book. I know you've written uh, 14 other books or so before this one. What, what turned your attention to these three great saints? Right, you're correct. That This is number 15 for me. I, I write for adults and children, and um, this is my 30th year as a Catholic, and it kind of was a good time to be a little retrospective, but um, I didn't actually set out to write the book. It was a, an idea for a women's retreat I had when I was thinking, uh, what topics could I talk about from uh, for a Friday to Sunday women's retreat? And I thought about these three saints who have really impacted my spiritual journey, and I do presentations on each one of them. And I began to think, well, what do these saints have in common? And it, it became very clear to me right in the beginning that these saints, while they're all very virtuous, um, could, could each really demonstrate one specific 
virtue, and those three virtues were faith, hope, and love, which are, of course, the theological virtues. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And I, I wrote this book called Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, Three Saints Who Challenged My Faith, Gave Me Hope, and Taught Me How to Love. So it's kind of an interesting book from the standpoint that it's part like memoir from my point of view, how these saints came into my life and what they taught me personally, and it also introduces the reader to these three saints. There's a chapter on each one of these saints, so if a reader didn't know too much about one of them, they would really learn a lot in this book, and because I didn't want to make the book just about me, I thought, how can I, you know, there's, there's these wonderful saints, you named a few yourself just before you brought me on the show, and you're right, we have so many terrific saints, so if I can leave my reader with something about these three remarkable women, then I think I've done my job. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's that's a, a brilliant approach to, to take the, the three virtues and to, and to find how each saint embodies them. And uh, if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to... Uh, those are three uh, very famous saints that many Catholics know about, but, but maybe they, they, they would like to learn more. Would, I'd like to, for each one, uh, just if you would, just give a little background on each saint, and then we can talk about their associated virtue if you're, if you're up for that today. Sure. Um, well, I'll, so I'll, I'll present the them in the order of those virtues, faith, hope, and love. Um, and uh, so faith for me was Bernadette, and Bernadette lived in um, the 1800s, mid-1800s, and she was the little French 14-year-old girl that saw 18 visions of the Virgin Mary at Lourdes, um, which is the very south part of France. And the reason I ascribe the virtue of faith to Bernadette is that she she had a lot of wonderful qualities, but she was very, very steadfast in what she saw and heard in that grotto, and she had a very um, uh, deliberate testimony over of what the Virgin had told her, and she would recite this, because in the beginning she didn't even know how to read or write, but she stuck to her testimony no matter what came against her, and at the time the police were threatening to throw her in jail, even her own clergy, you know, her pastor was threatened by this because it was a volatile right. time in France, and of course that's when Our Lady always appears, at volatile times. And, you know, and so this was a volatile time to be claiming apparitions of this kind, and, and yet she held on to this and held on to this, stood up for this, and, and lived these messages of prayer, penance, and conversion in a very simple, very obedient way. She didn't look for fame or fortune or recognition. She just lived this very humble life and and in the convent, she really developed um, her virtue of, of faith to just be steadfast again, And because she was never totally isolated. She wanted to be kind of alone then to just grow in her own spirituality, but she was always sought after, whether it was journalists or bishops or, you know, people like that who wanted to hear the testimony from her. So she really presented her faith till the very end, even when she was forgetting some of the details of the vision towards the end of her life, she still maintained faith, inspired me to be more faith. My faith in action, we can't just live our faith, and we have to demonstrate with adversity, which, of course, we're all. Right, absolutely. I think that's uh, a great um, a great way to, to put it. Um, and uh, and so you said that that, uh, that actually inspired, inspired your faith as well, to have the example of Bernadette. It did, and it, and going over there to write, I was sent to Lourdes to write the book, and seeing the the care of the invalids that come there, all the people with disabilities and physical, mental, whatever it is, emotional, spiritual, and the healings that take place, and and the um, just the strength people derive from going to a sanctuary like that, it really uh, it really brought to mind that pilgrimage for me was 
how many crosses people carry, and it didn't make my crosses that I was carrying look very big, and that I could find myself to be even more compassionate to those that suffer around us. And we all have people in our lives who are suffering, as I say, physically, emotionally, mentally, and and that I could be more like Bernadette and, and reach out to those people. And so, you know, she really did impact my life in a, a tremendous way. And then Faustina, I ascribe her as the virtue of hope, because Faustina lived in um, like the nineteen, the early nineteen hundreds, and into nineteen like thirties is when she had her visions of Jesus. And she was a Polish sister in a, in a cloistered convent. And this was all the messages of the Divine Mercy. And this is where we get our great devotion to the Divine Mercy is through Faustina and her visions. And the reason I ascribe hope to Faustina is she also lived in a troubled time because she was in Poland at the time the Nazis were just about to invade Poland. And, you know, so all of Europe was was kind of embroiled in this pre-World War II atmosphere. So there was a lot of tension, especially in her country and um, a lot of religious depression, uh, both Jews and Catholics. And so there was a lot going on in her time. And uh, again, uh, the idea of having visions and this message of mercy was very threatening to the communist government. So um, she And she would know all of this. She would have the premonition that this would be the case. But she really, again, held firm to what she saw and heard in her visions of Jesus, even when her superiors had a hard time believing her or her confessors had a hard time believing her because her intimacy with Jesus was pretty outstanding, and it's captured in her um, diary, uh, 600-page diary, with a lot of words from Jesus to her. So she really had a very intimate union with him, and, and yet she held on to the message of hope, and she knew that this message of hope, because um, it's a message of mercy, and mercy is therefore hope, because mercy allows us to all start again. You know, no matter how big our sins are, God's mercy is always greater so there's this tremendous hope. So it was not only the message of hope for um, her country of Poland, but it was the message of hope for every soul individually and our salvation through Christ. So um, I, I just re- really ascribe her, and I have called on Faustina countless times in my life, and I'll cite many of these in my book about times in my own life when life got hard and I had to keep saying that mantra, Jesus, I trust in you, I trust in you, whether it was financial difficulties or or health, or fertility, or whatever the issue was, that Jesus had a plan, and I could turn all of my life, every aspect of it, over to him. And uh, so I really ascribe hope to Faustina. And then my third saint, um, St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, who was the answer to your trivia question I heard while I was on the line yeah. waiting, um, she, who I actually met first in my life, she embodies love. Um, she was just uh, a young uh, French None. She also, like Bernadette, she was right after Bernadette's time. So kind of was Bernadette first, then Therese and Faustina. But um, also from France, Therese grew up in a very loving atmosphere and in her home, and so she really understood what love was from an early age, and she equated God with love, which actually sounds like that's not a big deal to us in modern times. But in Therese's time, her vision of God as a loving, merciful father was very radically different than the popular Catholic belief of the lay people, not that the Church taught this, but they were into that Jansenism heresy where they really were so focused on God, the judge, that people lived in fear and, and there was this mm-hmm. emphasis on sin and, and that God would punish. And, and of course, they, they missed out on the, the love and the mercy. But she saw this very clearly from the time she was a child. And she would also face 
her own hurdles, um, like these other two saints. She would have health issues. She would also be kind of um, a little bit rejected for, she didn't have visions or anything, but but her insights, I think, uh, some of the community members weren't sure what to make of her, but she also um, just exuded love, and she tried to love the most unlovable people in her community. You know, it wasn't this lofty love that was reserved for Jesus. She knew she had to take that love and then apply it in day-to-day life like we all do with all the people in our life, whether it's our family, our religious community, but we're all given people that can be difficult to love at times, and that's when we're asked to really implement it. So I credit Therese for really helping me be a more loving um, wife and mother of four boys. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah, she's uh, certainly an inspiration to many Catholics. And, and the other two, Faustina and Bernadette, uh, they, they clearly have more of the uh, miraculous associated with them. But Therese uh, is a great miracle worker in her own way. Many many miracles have been associated with Therese. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of, yeah. of, uh, of Therese? Yeah, and you're very right about that. You know, Therese, uh, had a premonition at the end of her short life. All these women live very short lives. Therese was, you know, only 24, um, and uh, so very, very short life, 33 for Faustina, 35 for Bernadette. But Therese knew, as she was um, kind of in the last year of her life, she had a premonition that her work wasn't going to end with her earthly life, but that she would continue to do good work for God from, from heaven. And so, really, the, the reason that she has been named um, patroness of the missions, this woman who lived only 24 years in this cloistered convent in France, right. and very few earthly people ever really knew her, right. she is the patroness of missions because she's had a tremendous effect after her death, and it was through, uh, first it was through this um, diary that she wrote, her own story of a soul, her own autobiography she wrote, that would touch millions of lives over the last century and a half, and then through her um, intercession, you know, that she promised she would send down these roses from heaven, that she would let fall a shower of roses, and this tradition of asking her intercession and, and, and the sign of a flower as, as a sign that the prayer has been brought before God, you know, had, was uh, something that took place right after her canonization, and that, that tradition has really held so people... Um, you know, see her intercession and, and, and her book, her intercession. And then the third way that she's touched lives after her death have, have been her relics tour and uh, that, that have, you know, gone all over the world and people from all walks of life, all types of faith or no faith at all, all ages, come and, and revere her because I like to say about Therese that she was such an accessible saint. She just, she never puffed herself up or was pretentious. In fact, all three of these could say the same thing about all three of these saints very approachable, very real um, in how they saw themselves, and especially Therese, she had that little way of spirituality. She saw herself as the little bird, not the great eagle, that kind of thing. And so she's so approachable and, and again, relatively modern, uh, you know, a century and a half ago, so modern in terms of the Church's history, and she's mm-hmm. relatable, so I think she, uh, she attributes, uh, that, that's attributed to her. So, yeah, with, with all these miracles associated with Therese, um, uh, very much, uh, she's the patroness of missions. Absolutely, and and one of the things that I think is so fascinating that kind of links uh, these these three women in my head is that um, it's it's really amazing that their stories have made it out to the world at large. In the sense that they were cloistered nuns, or they they lived a very simple life in a lot of ways, and it wasn't until their incredible stories uh, broke out to the world 
that they became known. They, they really, by all, by any other uh, measure, they shouldn't be known in such a great way throughout the world. Can you talk a little bit about that, how they, they went from the simple to being an inspiration for the, the church at large? Right. I know if you had all these three women on your show today, they would tell you the same thing, that they never set out to be these famous. I'm sure they all could say they wanted to be saints in their own right, of course, but yes, not for their course. own recognition at the time. And of course, saints aren't canonized till after their death anyway, so, so they don't get that recognition in their life. But right. these women were not about themselves. They were about carrying out a mission that they saw that they each had. You know, Bernadette had the visions of Our Lady and and she knew she had to, to live that those messages. She couldn't just, you know, talk about it or, or make that work for her own benefit. She had to just live the message. That she was so focused on that. Faustina was her message of the divine mercy, what Jesus was saying. He was asking her to be the secretary of mercy. And then Therese, with her understanding of God as this loving, merciful father, um, that she realized the world was missing out on, or at least her French Catholic world was missing out on. You know, even people of her religious order were missing out on it because they lived in, in this fear of God and everything. So sure. two of the women, Therese and Faustina, would leave us their writings, which really helped us see their spirituality, which, you know, helped us get into their, um, how they saw God, how they were trying to overcome their self-will. That was a big one for all three of them, and, you know, really for all of us, how to overcome our self-will and unite it with God's self-will. So we have the writings of these two brilliant women to help us. And then with Bernadette, she wasn't a prolific writer. There is, um, you know, she had a very simple notebook that has some, you know, of her writings in it. But what she really mm-hmm. left us was her um, her way of life, how she lived this out till her death. And that's why she's often held up as kind of like the exemplary visionary, of which all visionaries should be compared to, because she was so untainted by what could have been the fame and, and all that attention on her. She just really lived a life of integrity, of simplicity, of obedience. And so um, her lifestyle and then how Lourdes just, you know, people began to have experiences over there, and it just became such a powerful center of healing, you know, ecumenical healing physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Uh, so her legacy lives on through that because that's still a place where we can very tangibly experience Our Lady and in um, the life of Bernadette. So uh, that's why I think all three of these women are so powerful, uh, such spiritual giants today. Absolutely. And you touched on it earlier. Uh, can, can we talk a little bit about your conversion and how uh, you, you, you mentioned how each of these three women uh, impacted your life? Uh, I know that you are now a radio host of a program called Answering the Call, and you've been on EWTN, uh, The Journey Home, and uh, you, you do a lot of speaking and presentations. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you how you went from uh, not even being Catholic in the first place <laughs> to being inspired to make this a part of your life? I know. I, I truly am a Catholic evangelist in all those ways you mentioned, but um, kind of like a, a short version of it was uh, Therese was the first one that came into my life. I found a medal on the sidewalk when I was eight. I was not Catholic. I, I kind of knew it was a Catholic medal because I had friends who were Catholic, but I assumed that this little woman on the medal was Mary, because I thought all Catholics had Mary on their medal. I didn't know anything about saints. It wasn't until 15 years later when a series of events would kind of lead me to the Catholic Church, mostly the meeting of my future husband when I was in college, and going to Mass and experience the Eucharist for the first time, and having my eyes open to the fact that that really was Jesus. Those were some big points in my life. I could feel God guiding me into that. 
So um, I wouldn't discover Teresa's identity on that medal until I was in my early 20s and a new Catholic, and I was voraciously reading about my new faith. Um, and I realized, wow, she's been in my life since I was eight years old, and that got me to read her book and to really believe that she had been like a guardian over my life since I was a child, and she would become the very heart of a mission that I believe God gave me. That was like one, one few times I, I believe I heard God speak in my heart when I was eight, that he told me he had a special mission for me. He didn't tell me what it was, but he told me he had a special sure. mission for me. And I believe my mission is very much, besides being a wife and mother, of course, is this Catholic evangelist through the means you just mentioned. And Therese was at the heart of it because she would be um, the subject of my first magazine article I had published. She was the subject of my first adult book, and she was um, really what impressed upon my heart the need to take my excited, fervent love for my new faith and bring it to other people, like she did. And it wasn't just about me anymore. And then Faustina I met um, kind of about 10 or 15 years into the Catholic faith for me in the 90s, and I read her diary. I fell in love with her, just like I did with Therese's book. And she would really help me with one obstacle I had in becoming Catholic. My one sole obstacle was the sacrament of confession. I just Mm. dreaded it. I hated it. I didn't get it. It was miserable. It never felt better after I went. And after reading her book, and I was doing all that private devotion back then. She wasn't even canonized in the 90s. That didn't happen until 2000. But I had an experience, a miraculous experience, coming out of the confessional one day after I'd made a very powerful confession. And it's it's one of my magazine articles is called Confession of a Catholic Convert. It's on my website, and your listeners can look up that. But, but essentially, I was so miserable of what I had done. But the important part of the story is not what I had done, but what happened as I was coming out of the confessional. And I felt this tangible, like, water washing over me, and this instant moment of feeling light and, and clean and new and, and rejuvenated compared to what I had felt in the confessional. And I was remembering Jesus' words to Faustina that I wish to pour out in my oceans of mercy upon my sinners. And, and I really believe that God and Faustina were giving me a tangible, you know, experience of what that mercy feels like, how we can all start again through this right. And So I credit her with that very much. And then Bernadette was the third one I met um, in 2006, I think it was, when I was asked to do a book on Lourdes to commemorate the 150th anniversary of Lourdes, and I had not been there at that point, and I thought, how can I write a book about it? But I put it in God's hands, and uh, through, I guess, more miracles, I was sent over there, and that's when I encountered the real Bernadette and found out she wasn't the little plastic, cute figure from the movie. She really was a a very tough, and driven woman with a lot of courage mm-hmm. to carry out the mission that God gave her. And so, again, so it's just these wonderful saints have become such spiritual companions, such friends, such mentors uh, in everything I do in my life. And uh, so it was a delight to, to write about them and introduce my readers to them. Absolutely. No, that's wonderful. And uh, it, it, you mentioned earlier in the program that you give presentations, and you've given presentations about each of these three saints. Can you talk a little bit about that ministry that you do? And I, I know you speak to young people as well. I do. Um, I do a whole bunch of uh, presentations. They're all on my website, and my website's simply elizabethficacelli.com. But um, I speak on all kinds of topics, Marian topics, vocations, the sacraments, that's a big one. I'll speak on uh, various sacraments, the saints, and, um, and and young people as well. I do a, 
a talk on miracles, kind of introducing miracles to our younger generation, which I think they don't know a lot about. So yeah, gonna, I, I saw that on your website, your Bleeding Hands, Weeping yes. Stone book, and then the accompanying presentation. I think that's such an interesting thing to attract young people. Can you talk a little bit about what the what the idea is be, behind using miracles to attract people? Yeah, because when I was 23 and a brand new Catholic, that was the very first subject that got me, you know, that, that I began to study of the Catholic Church were the miracles, because I didn't have those in, in the background I grew up in. And so, it, you know, the book is intended to capture teenagers and maybe young adults and just give them a, an introduction with short stories to these, but to some, some main categories of miracles like stigmata, incorrupt bodies, um, amazing abilities of, of saints, apparitions, weeping icons, and those sorts of things. So, um, Because I, I believe that kids, young people especially today, are drawn by you know the things we see in the movies, for instance, the computer graphics of of all these things that are just beyond normal, beyond natural, and 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 they're accustomed to this. But I want to let them know there are things that are beyond normal and beyond natural in our right. Catholic faith, but they're not computer generated; they're real. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that was the idea behind that book, and so we do a presentation on that. And my husband joins me in a few of the presentations. So um, it's been wonderful getting to travel around the country and and meeting all kinds of uh, Catholics and uh, young and, and not so young and. And, and seeing the growth of people falling in love again with their faith or coming to it for the first time. Can you talk a little bit about working with the young people again, how they've responded to your presentations, and are they excited about their faith again, or, or what, what, what reaction have you gotten from the younger crowd? Yeah, when I, talk, when I do the Miracles presentation, they are completely silent, usually with their mouths open a little bit and their eyes bugged out. And everything. <laughs> because a lot of them have never heard this before, so they're really engaged with that. Another presentation that I do, I actually do this one with my husband that's real popular, is what we call Theology of Dance, and um, it's, a, it's a presentation we give followed by a swing dance lesson, but what it's mainly trying to do is make the parallels between a proper, dignified type of dance, like swing dancing, for instance, any kind of ballroom dancing, and life relationships between, you know, male and female, and mm-hmm. um, the kids really are, are open to hearing these messages you know, that they need to hear, that men need to take take the role as leaders, and, and women lead, need to learn how to um, follow and yet also realize that they're precious and worth living for, dying for, sacrificing for. And um, so we talk about, you know, communication and respectful touch and intimacy. And then, like I say, we give them a, a swing dance lesson at the end, which is lots of fun, and, and it really helps them relate to people of the opposite sex. So it, that's been another popular thing. But I do love working with the young people, and of course I go to the very youngest kids in, in parochial schools, and I'll, I'll do author visits to the schools like that. And, and they just love it. I mean, they, they love hearing about their faith, whether it's sacraments or Blessed Mother. And uh, So, yeah, I see a very open and ready audience among our young people. So, praise God. That's wonderful. I think that's a, a wonderful apostolate to, to bring to the young people. Um, and I, that, that whole, that whole uh, analogy of the dance, I think that's, that's a great way to introduce it. And in your in your book uh, it's, uh, itself um, about the three great saints here, Trez, Faustina, and Bernadette, you have a check, chapter uh, dedicated to authentic femininity. Can you talk a little bit a bit uh, about how you tie those that together with these three saints? Yeah, um, because when I came out of college, I came out of college in, in the early 1980s. So I was working in the field of advertising in New York City. And so corporate world, and it was very much a uh, man's world, 
you know, good old boy network. And back then, women had to dress like men, act like men, and tolerate a whole bunch of inappropriate behavior if they wanted to keep their jobs. And this was the environment, mm. you know, you're raised with. And we only know what we know, right? That we're products of our time. Sure. And I was always struggling in that environment because something deep down did not feel right. Like I knew I was qualified to be an advertising writer and I knew I could work well, but I just, this whole trying to be a man, trying to be something I wasn't, never sat well with me. And it would take a long time to begin to understand and, and, and becoming Catholic and, and reading about the women of the, the Bible and how powerful and strong they were, but never ever being anything but what they were, which was women, and just their inherent qualities and characteristics, how they used those to achieve really great ends, and then reading things like John Paul and his Theology of the Body and Encyclical for Women, and realizing that women are very influential, very powerful, but by using their God-given nature and their traits and their characteristics that we don't have to pretend we're men, because we're not. I learned this having four boys. They're not girls, and I'm not a man. (laughs) It's totally different. So this whole authentic femininity and these three saints were, again, powerful spiritual giants, but were never anything less than women. I mean, they were just women, you know, living their faith and, uh, and not in the corporate world, you know, not setting out to be on Oprah Winfrey and write the next New York Times bestseller, and yet they've changed the world for millions. And so they're great icons. I think women need more icons like some of these Catholic saints, because Lord knows Hollywood isn't producing them. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Well, no, that's excellent stuff, and thank you for touching on that. And uh, so I, I think a lot of our listeners uh, uh, have a great love for, for these uh, saints. I know Therese, especially a lot of the listeners have a, a great interest in that. And even even just with the trivia questions, so many lights lighted up on the switchboard uh, when Therese was the answer, I could tell. You know, that we have a lot of fans of Therese out there, so they'll be interested in getting your book. Can you tell, tell the audience how they would go about finding your book? Sure. I'd love to invite them to my website, which, again, is just my name, elizabethficicelli.com, and that Ficicelli is F-I-C-O-C-E-L-L-I. So elizabethficicelli.com. It's got all my books on there. It's got magazine articles, some of them I talked about today and um, my media appearances, my uh, speaking kind of presentations I do. I'd love to come out and um, talk in your area. So, uh, yeah, definitely invite them there, and then also Catholic bookstores in their area or Amazon. Great. And you mentioned some of your articles that you've written. Are those also found on your website there? Yes, and people are are welcome to read them and and download them and share them with their friends. So that's, that's all there ready for them on the website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us on the show today. It's been very informative, and it's really really beautiful the way these saints have impacted your journey to uh, the Catholic faith and how they continue to impact you. So thank you for sharing that, and, and I hope people uh, pick up your book, uh, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, and God bless you, Michael. God bless you. And that's all the time we have on the show today. I'd like to thank our guest, author Elizabeth Ficicelli, for joining us on the show. Uh, people can buy her book, Therese, Faustina, and Bernadette, uh, on her website, uh, elizabethficocelli.com. That's Ficocelli, F-I-C-O-C-E-L-L-I.com, or you can find it on Amazon.com. Um, coming up in a couple of weeks, I, on June 26th, I will be speaking at a Legatus conference in Park Ridge, Illinois, and we'll be talking about miracles, of course. 
Uh, be sure to visit MiracleHunter.com as your resource for miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.